All right. Hey, good morning, Story Family. How are y'all doing? It's good. It's good to see you guys. Welcome back uh, from spring break. And I was gone, too, for the last couple of Sundays. And, man, it was awesome in a way. It was bittersweet. Let me say, bittersweet to be away and have no one text me after a Sunday morning and say, man, we really miss you. The sub wasn't as good as you. No one did that. And it used to be the case, I'd be away and people would go, man, I brought my friend for the first time, you weren't here, he's probably never coming back. No one says that anymore because our preaching team has gotten so formidable and so good and I'm so grateful to uh, Dylan Braddock and Pastor Kale from our Timber Grove campus and also um, Meredith Kirk, who you heard from, just an amazing group of young preachers that are going to be carrying the torch forward long after I'm no longer around. So, and many of us are going to be long gone, but they're going to be carrying that torch forward and passing it on to the next generation. So grateful uh, for them and uh, for all of you for being here today. We're pulling out chairs um, in the aisles, which is every pastor's fever dream. Thank you so much for making that happen today. It's not even Easter, all right? Uh, So we are in part 18 of 22 in our series on the Gospel of Luke called A Physician and the Facts. This is a 22-part series. This is part 18. We are just two Sundays away from Easter Sunday. So this series is going to take us through Easter, obviously, but I just want to make sure everybody knows Easter is coming. And you see this problem we're starting to have here at 945, which is a good problem. Not enough seats in the house. That's great. This is going to be especially the case on Easter. And I'm going to give you an insider tip. All right. So if you want to avoid having uh, to stand in the back or to be in the overflow room in the discipleship hall or anything else like that, um, uh, you can come to our 8.30 service, or we don't always have this problem at 8.30, all right? There's usually fewer people at that service. Or you can come to the 7 a.m. sunrise service, which is a beautiful way to start your Easter and make sure you have a seat. Also, you'll leave a spot open for our guests who are more likely to come at 9.45 and 11, all right? So a lot, a lot of great things happening on uh, Holy Week, Good Friday services at both campuses, egg hunts, Most importantly, egg hunts at both campuses, and then we've got six or so services planned across our campuses. Going to be a great Easter. I cannot wait to celebrate with all of you. All right, today, I think the reason why so many people showed up is because today we're talking about everyone's favorite topic, which is the end times, okay? (laughs) The end is near is what we're talking about today, which is very much a biblical message, and yet it's not something we've talked much about at this, uh, at this church. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But first, I just want to invite you to get your study guides if you want to use those as a way to track with me in this message. And I want to say hello. I didn't earlier, but say hello to our online campus as well. Wherever you are in the world, if you're joining us through this medium, hello and welcome. You're part of the story. Timber Grove has their own preacher today. Pastor Kale is preaching live there, so I don't need to welcome them. But if you're online, welcome. Please check in in the comments section just so we can say hi. All right, so part 18. Perfectly timed ringtone up front here. (laughs) Part 18, the end times. What did Jesus have to say about the end times and why do we not talk more about it? I've thought a lot about this because I don't think I have preached more than once or twice on the end times in the story's eight years of existence. And that is a self-own. I'm not proud of that. I'm confessing that. All right? Because There's no getting around the fact that the end times or eschatology, study of the last things, the second coming of Christ, all that stuff, the apocalypse, all that stuff, Armageddon, all that stuff, 
very much a part of a biblical worldview. And if you want to take Jesus seriously, you better take today's topic seriously. So why are we not talking about it more? Is it just because it's kind of a bummer? It's kind of a downer? No one leaves an end-time sermon going, let's get brunch. You know, it's like, it's a little heavy. Understood, understood, but I think there's more to it than that. I think it goes back to my past, and some of you will resonate with my past. I grew up in the Bible Belt in the 80s and 90s during the climate that sort of gave rise to the Left Behind books and movies later. It's like, I lived Left Behind. You don't know trauma. These kids today talk about, I I have trauma. You don't know trauma until you grow up in the Bible Belt and you wake up late on a Saturday morning to an empty house because they all left somewhere and didn't leave a note and they didn't have cell phones. There's no way of verifying. You were only left to assume that they had been raptured and you were not. That was your own, I promise you, that terror for me as a child was real. And it was like the Christian version of the, of the Home Alone movie. It was like left alone. It's like, um, it was like, am I, am I not among the elect, Lord? Am I to endure the tribulation alone? Father? Like all these doubts. The tortured soul of a Christian kid in the Bible belts in the 80s and 90s cannot be overestimated. Maybe that's why I don't talk about it anymore. Maybe I'm working through my childhood trauma. I don't know. But it wasn't just the fake rapture stuff, that, that uh, the false alarm raptures, right, that, that sort of uh, got me up in arms uh, when I was young. It was the fact that every time anything happened geopolitically that sounded remotely like anything you find in the book of Revelation, like the preacher's series of sermons for the next several weeks would be about how the end is upon us and you should get your house and affairs in order because clearly the Cold War is here. Our sworn enemy is the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is communist. Communist's favorite color is red. Revelation chapter 6 says one of the four horses of the apocalypse will be red. Duh, the end is near, all right? Like, that's the kind of games that, that I grew up playing in my own head and just constantly afraid because of different things happening in the world. Or, you know, a lot of people thought the Cold War was sort of a sign of the end times. Before that, a lot of people thought, like, the Holocaust and World War II was a sign of the end times. Pretty strong case for that one. Like, I can see how people thought Hitler might have been Antichrist material or something. It's like, there's, every generation seems to have a struggle with this, And it doesn't just have to be some kind of geopolitical conflict. It can just be natural events that sound like something from the Bible. Like one time, not one time, several times actually throughout my childhood and youth, there was this phenomenon called the the harvest moon. You know what this is? It's like when the moon sort of rises or sets on the horizon and something in the atmosphere, the dust or something, makes it look really deep red like blood red, you might say. When you're a kid growing up reading the Bible in Acts chapter 2 says this about a moon that's blood red, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon turned to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. When you are, let's say, hypothetically speaking, a freshman in college, you've just met the girl of your dreams, she's finally relented to your non-stop pursuit of her. This is your other future pastor that I'm talking about right now. We met in college, and, and, and she finally gave in to my wooing and persuading, and, and finally, you know, she gave me her hand, and we started to kiss, and we made out. One time we made out. Kids don't listen. Sorry, my daughter's over here. That's uh, not true. I didn't do it. But for the sake of an illustration, one time we made out, and this is a true story. We made out driving home 
The moon was blood red in the sky. Both of us started to weep. What have we done? (laughs) It's the last day on earth and we've spent it like this. It's like all kinds of terror and trauma and fear. And maybe that's why we avoid the conversation. I don't know. But I also think it's worth mentioning that no matter how much or how little you've heard Christians talk about um, the apocalypse, the end times, Christians are not the only ones who have an apocalyptic narrative, especially these days. I hear more about the end of the world from non-Christians or secular people than I do from Christians these days. Like, I know Christians are, are famous for saying, like, the end is near, sidewalk preachers with their sandwich boards or signs, or the end is near. But I've heard more politicians and, like, secular voices and sort of scientific voices saying the end is near in the last 10 to 20 years than I've ever heard Christians say. There's a congresswoman that famously said a few years ago, the world's going to end in 12 years, like naming the date. And I'm like, wow, Christians and secular people have so much in common now. Like our Venn diagrams are, are overlapping. Remember Al Gore's movie from 2006, An Inconvenient Truth? How many dates were named in that movie? If you ever go back and watch it, he's like, in three years, this is going to happen. In five years, this is going to happen. In 12 years, we're not going to be here anymore. Like, everything was supposed to have ended by now. But here we are. And I'm not really um, validating or criticizing claims made by climate alarmists. If you want to know my views on climate change, go back and listen to the sermon that I preached last year. It's called... I think maybe Eric's views on climate change or something, something obvious. You can find it online. Okay, so that's not the point of this. The point is to say we all have this tendency to, or, or maybe this hardwiring that leads us to understand and know that this world cannot last, that there will be an end, that there is a deadline at some point. And whether it's the climate or, or AI that's going to take over, my conservative friends are all of an arms about AI now, that's going to be the end of us, or, or whatever your choice uh, is there, it's, it's, there's something that's going to bring it all to an end. On this, we can all agree. The biblical explanation for this is that we're all made in the image of God, and maybe we came hardwired with this knowledge that things cannot and will not go on forever. And so we should prepare lest we get caught off guard. That's, that's the spirit behind all of these apocalyptic warnings that I hear, whether they're Christian or um, non-Christian. All right, so um, if you don't hear anything else from me today about Christians in the end times, I just want you to know, if you're here like kicking the tires on Christianity and you just think end times teaching is kind of kooky and cringe, I just want you to know, and I'm gonna try to explain this today, This is not a peripheral teaching within Christianity. It's not just some Christians that believe Jesus is coming back and he's coming back to judge the ungodly and he's coming back to establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. He's going to reign over it. And then after that, everything as we know is going to come to an end and he's going to establish a new heaven, create a new heaven and a new earth in which all of his beloved will dwell and will have glory with him forever. Like that's just fundamental Christian teaching. That's as essential as it gets, okay? So this is, it has always been essential Christian doctrine and not something that's just fringe or fundamentalist, okay? So the reason we take all this seriously is because Jesus did. He talked a lot about it. We're going to look at Luke now and dig into one of the times in which Jesus really goes after it. And his answers to the questions disciples of his had about the end times are his longest answers to any questions. That he, that's, that's just to say, 
it was that important to him, and it should be that important to us. All right, so let's look at uh, Luke chapter 21 to see what Jesus had to say about the things that are to come and what we need to know about the end times. Luke 21, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, I really would love for you to just grab the Bible in the chair back in front of you, or at least grab the study guide and look at the scriptures there so you can have this scripture in your hands and not just hear me say it. 21, verse 5 says, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple, the Jerusalem temple, was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So they're on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, looking down onto the skyline of Jerusalem, and the disciples are talking about the temple, which would have been the highlight of the skyline at the time. And Jesus said, it's all going away. And then they said, teacher, uh, when? (laughs) When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? So two chronological questions here. When will this happen and what will the sign be? Jesus replied, watch out that you are not deceived for many will come in my name claiming I am he. Okay, so we're gonna stop right there. Uh, I want to just stop and talk about this for a second. So the disciples' first question is the same question many of us want to know about the end times, and that is when. Why do we want to know the when? Because we want to know by what time we need to have our act together. (laughs) We We don't want to be having a bad day or a string of bad days when this whole thing goes down, all right? So Jesus, if you could give us a hint about when, we could be sure to have our ducks in a row uh, so that we're not caught off guard when you return. That's what they want to know. What does Jesus do with their question? He doesn't even answer it. He doesn't even acknowledge their win questions. Instead, he goes immediately to questions about how his followers should live. They say, when, Jesus, what will be the sign? And he tells them, this is how you should live. And that should tell us something. We should be asking better questions, not just when, so we can be sure to save ourselves or get ourselves in order. He, he, he's encouraging us to ask Questions like, how should we live? And he, he answers this in three different ways that are really important for us to see. The first thing he says is, don't be deceived. This is the first warning he gives up about how we live in these last days. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Don't take the bait, in other words. Don't be fooled. Don't believe the lies. What lies? Well, he intimates, first of all, there's going to be lies about the when, W-H-E-N, the time. There's going to be false promises about the date that everything's going to come to an end. And we've seen this, have we not? Like Christians have, I've seen and heard Christians predicting, like 2012 was supposed to be the year, you guys. It was going to be so apocalyptic, they made a movie called 2012, in which it all fell apart, right? And then 2012 came and it went. Before that, we had Y2K. 2,000, you guys? Was, it was like 2,000 years is a pretty biblical number. It's like two millennia. Like, okay, this might be it. All the banks are going to close. Our money's going to be. Y'all remember that? Those of you who aren't children, all right? Of course, we're still here. 
So some of the lies, whether it's from Christians or non-Christians, have to do with the wind. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 24 about people that promise wind. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What's this mean? Well, I think it means anytime someone claims to know the time or the date, they're a deceiver. And they will use that sort of false promise as a, a tool or a weapon against people to, to scare them. And look, I think this is true about, you know, climate alarmists that make certain predictions about certain dates that they don't really know. But what this does is it, it causes people to lose faith in the scientific community, just like false Christian promises cause people to lose faith in the Christian community. Anytime someone says, this is when it's going down, that's the surest sign you should have to walk away and not believe them. But Jesus goes even further. He's like, it's not just about the when. He also says, don't be deceived by false religion. What does he say to look out for? Let's, I'm going to look back at the, at the scripture. He says, teacher, uh, they, they said, teacher, when will these things happen? Then he says, watch out that you're not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he. And then he will say the time is near. All right, so people that come in his name saying I am he are people claiming truth when it's false. In other words, this, uh, the clearest interpretation of this I can think of would be that this is Jesus saying false Christianity, because people are coming in Jesus' name, saying that they're him, that they represent Christ. And so it's not just about other false like world religions, and we can get into all of that, but in fact, one false version of Christianity has to do with other world religions. There's a false strain of Christianity in our culture now that wants to be so tolerant and so, so nice that it wants to say all religions are basically the same, including Christianity, and all religious leaders take you to the same place and teach the same things. That's deception. It's just not true. As much as any of us wants to be nice and kind and inclusive and tolerant, like we should be very careful not to allow that inclination to lead us down some path of deception. So there are all kinds of false Christianities, right? All kinds of false gospels, both on what you might call the left and the right. It's not just people that want to be more inclusive, like folks on the left. I've seen people on the right as well, the theological, you know, conservative side, that will promote a kind of gospel that's so legalistic and, and, and so pharisaic that it, it communicates to people that if you want God to love you, you better prove how much you love God. Listen, it's false Christianity. Everything that needs to be proven was proven on the cross. And so we are living the way we're living, not to prove anything or to earn anything. It's just out of a free response to the grace we've already received in Christ. You're saved. If you're in Christ, you're saved. You're free. You're in Christ already. And so you live righteously, not to get more from him, but just to thank him, to glorify him, and to tell others about him. So do not be deceived by false promises is the first one. Do not be deceived by false religion or false Christianity is the second. And the third is maybe the most uh, insidious or the sneakiest one. Do not be deceived by false security. By false security. What I mean here is um, it's pretty clear that the disciples looked at the temple as a security blanket. As long as the temple stood in Jerusalem, God was with the people of Israel. 
But when Jesus said that temple will not be around for long, and he was right, 40 years after he said these words, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And what he's, what he's evoking in his disciples is a sense of instability, insecurity. If the temple's gone, then God might be gone, right? It's like they connected their value system of God with the building that they thought he lived in. And Jesus is telling them, do not get caught up in the things of this world in which you find security. What do you find security in? Money, right? Job, family, house, maybe church. What Jesus is saying is the temples, they come and go. Church buildings come and go. Jobs, Lord knows they come and go. Money, Lord knows that that comes and it goes. All these things of this earth in which we find security, they come and they go. Only Jesus remains. And so how do you keep from being deceived? Jesus says, follow no one but him. Follow no one but him. Worship nothing but Christ. Let's keep reading in uh, Luke 21, verses 9 through 11. He says to them, uh, nation will rise against nation. This is Luke 21, 9. And kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. First, Jesus said, do not be deceived. And here he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. How should we live between now and his second coming? Not deceived and unafraid. I remember when COVID was starting, and my first sermon after the shutdown started of COVID in mid-March of 2020 was, look, the world's a scary place. And if you didn't have Christ, I, don't, I, I genuinely feel sad for people that are not in Christ because the world must be especially scary. When you look at these headlines and see how our world's being torn apart by our political divides and threats of wars and rumors of nuclear wars and all these kinds of things that scare us. You know what Jesus said about those things? He didn't say they're not scary. In fact, he said that there are frightening things that happen. He says fearful events in this passage. They are scary. He just says, don't be afraid. There are scary things in this world, but because of Jesus, we need not be afraid. And so even when your life gets scary, even when the things you thought you could trust in fall apart, do not be afraid. There is one thing, though, that the Bible says we should be afraid of, and only one thing. The only thing that the Bible gives us permission to be afraid of is God. And this is a little bit of a conundrum, a little bit of a paradox, because the Bible is always like, perfect love drives out fear, and do not be afraid, and fear not, but also fear God. What does that mean? Well, I think it means in part the only proper way to look at God and his mighty, uh, um, perfect, holy, and good way is, is to, to see him with fear in our hearts because he is the only one that really deserves that awe, that uh, trembling that we often have in the presence of earthly things. Some of us have only been taught about having love in our hearts for God, and that's good, but that will only get you so far. If all you've ever known is love for God in your hearts, then you will be opened up to fearing other things in the world, because a God that can, should only be loved and not feared has no power over the things in this world that scare us. And sometimes a healthy fear of the Father 
A healthy fear of the Father alleviates our fears about everything else because he is powerful enough to overcome the things in this world that scare us. He is strong enough to do justice in this fallen and broken world. It's not that we cower like, oh my gosh, please don't hurt me. It's that we are in awe of his power and might. We're in awe of who he is and his holiness. And so that's how we keep from being afraid, is by fearing nothing but God. Let's uh, finish up this passage, uh, Luke 12, uh, 21, verse 12 through 19. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. So you will bear testimony to me, <clears throat> but make up your mind, here it is, not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. He says, make up your mind beforehand not to worry. He says, you will uh, be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Are y'all paying attention? Check out the paradox. I love it when Jesus does it, but it also kind of, He's so hard to get my head around him sometimes, but, but he's speaking truth that we need to see. He says first, they will put some of you to death, and then a line after that, he says, not a hair on your head will perish. Which is it, Jesus? It's both. It's both. They may take your life. They may threaten your life. This world might come after you, but they can never have your life. This is the eternal perspective that he gives us. And then he finishes this passage by saying, stand firm and you will win life. So about this end times business, Jesus says, do not be deceived. Then he says, do not be afraid. And here he says, don't be discouraged. The world's going to descend into darkness. It's going to happen. The world's going to have its problems, its wars, its rumors of wars. It's going to have its conflicts. It's going to have all kinds of controversy. Do not be surprised. And when the world gets especially difficult, when your life becomes especially hard, let that be your opportunity to shine the light of Christ. Let your ad adversity be your testimony, in other words. Every time the world comes after you and life is hard in Christ, it's an opportunity to testify to his glory. Truth is, <clears throat> there are in this world today uh, what we call wolves in sheep's clothing. There are false teachers in the church. Did you hear what, what he said in the beginning of this last passage where he's like, look out for your own people coming after you? What does that mean? If not, sometimes for Christians and followers of Jesus, the most resistance you'll face is from other people who claim to be Christians. And I've seen it for new believers, especially. They come to faith, and then they come to faith in like a radical way, and they, they decide to surrender their whole life to Jesus and make their whole life about him and obey what the Word of God says. And then other Christians in their lives that they would expect to flank them in this fight are the first ones to say, dude, you don't have to be that uptight. You don't have to stop drinking. You don't have to stop dating the way you used to date. You don't have to start living this differently. You're making us uncomfortable, dude. Just chill. 
Just go to church with us and that's enough. And this new Christian's like, I'm all in with Jesus. And they're like, no, just, you know, everything in moderation, including Jesus. It's like, sometimes that's the most devastating thing for a new believer. It's not those angry atheists out there. It's Christians who are holding one another back. And Jesus said it's going to happen. Even when the call is coming from inside the house, he says, glorify me. Even when you are a threat to those around you because you are so serious about Jesus and they call you out or exclude you, he says, do not be discouraged. And then he tells us how. The how here, we don't be discouraged, is by standing firm and then this beautiful line, and you will win life. Stand firm and you will win life. So how do we stand firm How do we endure? How do we hold fast when the world has lost its ever-loving mind? He tells us a few verses later. Look down at verse 34, if you have your Bible open, uh, verses 34 to 36. He says to Christians who are waiting for his second coming, be careful in the meantime. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, that's partying, drunkenness, that's sort of the result of partying, um, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all of those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Here we go. Specifics from Jesus How do we stay prepared? By living a sober life, he says. By living a clean life. By being a serious person. And I was convicted this week. I'm known a little bit for being kind of a jokester, kind of a prankster. And I have to ask myself sometimes, am I I a serious man who tells jokes or am I a jokester who pretends to be serious on Sunday mornings? Do we take these things seriously? Do we live accordingly? The last thing we want to do is for Jesus to come back and for our first words to Jesus when we see him to be, I can explain. We don't want Jesus to walk in our room at some ungodly hour of the night and we have to slam the laptop shut lest he see what we were looking at. Like we don't want to be cut off guard. We don't want to be sleeping off what we did the night before because our mind's just not quite right because our head hurts so bad because of how much we drank the night before. And then Jesus shows up and we're like, I just need coffee first, Jesus. I need coffee. You don't want to be in that place when he shows up. And it's not like he's going to actually catch us off guard. He's giving us warning after warning that no one knows the day or the hour that he's going to show up kind of like a thief in the night. Surprise! What will we be doing? How will we be living? These are the questions we should be asking instead of when will it happen or how will it happen? How are we living here and now? Are we prepared to receive him? If you ever played sports and you had a great coach, you might have had a coach that said, if you stay ready, you never have to get ready. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here, like a good coach or kind of like a good father would for a child that he's sending out into the world. You know, the question is asked, has to be asked here, why did Jesus say all this stuff? 
Like, is he just kind of wanting to bum us out? Because it kind of bums us out, Jesus. All this stuff about, you know, how bad it's going to get. He doesn't tell us to bum us out or to make us sad or to stress us out. He tells us this because he loves us. And he wants us to know what's coming. It's like when, when you're dropping your kid off at middle school for the first time. <laughs> and elementary school and middle school are such different places. And you want your kid to be ready. It's like, look, okay, listen, if you have a daughter, you're like, listen, the boys are going to smell really bad. And the girls are going to be mean, right? And I just want you to be ready. Or you drop your kid off for a middle school dance for the first time. It's their first dance. And if they're my kid, I'm just like, look, I, I want you to be prepared. You're not a good dancer. Like, you're not going just grab some punch and watch, right? <laughs> you just want this. She, she can dance. She really can, but most, I can't, all right? And my son, probably not as much. But anyway, <laughs> preaching with your kids in the room is a particular challenge, all right? That's all I'm saying. Well, we want our kids to be ready for whatever challenges they might face. <laughs> Perfect timing. She agrees, or he agrees. I can't tell from here. That's why Jesus told us these things is to make us ready. And listen, maybe you're just thinking, maybe you tried out this church and you're like, I heard it was for skeptics, but this really isn't for me. My heart is, is with you right now. And I will tell you that as I analyze my reasons for not talking more about the last things, the end times, the second coming of Christ, I think I can honestly chalk it up to the fact that we have tried with every fiber of our being to create a church that inspires non-religious and skeptical people to follow Jesus. And it seems like the last thing you want to talk about when you're inspiring skeptical people to follow Jesus is the second coming of Christ and the last things. And so we've just sort of pushed that to the back burner for fear of turning away skeptics and non-religious people. I've never wanted to be that preacher that sounds like he's scaring people into heaven, but something profound and important occurred to me this week. There's something even worse than scaring people into heaven by talking about the end times. And what's worse than that is lulling people into hell by never talking about the end times. So I'm not here to scare you. I'm not here to, you know, keep you up at night with something else to be anxious about. All I'm telling you today is hopefully you're hearing what Jesus said about these things so that you can live in a way that prepares you for his imminent coming. We believe 100% what Jesus has said is true. You can take it or leave it. You can take the Bible and accept it and live under it, or you can walk away from it and reject it. What I'm telling you we cannot do and have no license to do is to treat the Bible like a Luby's cafeteria and take the stuff we like and leave the stuff we don't and just build a Christian worldview around ourselves and our own feelings. That's not an option. So if any part of your heart, your spirit, your soul, in any way is penetrated by the words of Jesus and you want to be ready and you've been putting it off because you haven't felt a sense of urgency. I hope you feel that sense of urgency today. And I pray that you'll respond to this warning that Jesus gives us by saying yes to his invitation. Because no matter how you've lived, how bad it's gotten, how long you've rejected him, all it takes is one yes. After a thousand no's, one yes is enough to save your soul, to secure your place in heaven forever with the only one who is worthy of your worship. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this reminder and this warning. We take it um, 
with gratitude. We know that you didn't uh, offer these kinds of warnings to freak us out or bum us out or scare us, but simply to prepare us so that we would have cause to look up and not be afraid. Lord, we know you love us, and that's why you gave us these words of wisdom, and we thank you. We pray all these things with grateful hearts in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.